0: This is the Negro League Podcast with Preach Jim. gentlemen we are back this is the negro league podcast i go by the name of preach jacobs we're sponsored by mobile soul clothing go to mobettersoul.com and order some shit um also order the new pre-order for the 45 i got coming out produced by a tall black guy featuring sky zoo with scratches by the homie dj eclipse the song is called the black it is on mobile order that thing today it's a pandemic i need money and also some all other cool cool merchs on there as well um, it's been a while since we've been on here, but I have a very, very, very special guest that I've been trying to get here for a minute. But this week makes the perfect, perfect timing for this. Uh, this gentleman is a journalist, hip-hop historian, calls himself a political junkie, founder of Davy D's Hip-Hop Corner. Uh, has recently, his book co-authored with Jeff Chang, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, the Young Adult Edition, Comes out this week. He's also been featured on Hip Hop Evolution. If you've seen that on Netflix, Unsung and Tupac Thug Angel. If I go through all his accolades, we will run out of time. Shout out to the homie, Davey D. What's going on, homie?
1: I'm good, man. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, man. You know, let me let me let me cut that tall black guy uh, joint, man. You know, oh, I, I got it you. It's,
0: it's coming to you. It's, it's coming to you. Matter of fact, yeah. if, if I haven't sent you my other 45 that I have, the little the blue ones, I'll send you a pair of those as well. So yeah, shout out to tall what black are you guy.
1: Who's tall black guy? That ain't you
0: though. No, no, that's not me. That's not me. I'm not that tall. Oh, okay. I, I'm six. I'm okay, six yeah, one. <laughs> tall black guys like six five, six six. He's a he's an yeah. amazing producer, uh, uh, yeah. out of Detroit, who's been doing some fly fly okay. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um,
1: so, his stuff is butter. Oh yeah,
0: he's an amazing it's producer. So yeah, um, so yeah, first and foremost, uh, tell us about can't stop, won't stop. So correct me if I'm wrong, um, because I was familiar with this before. So can't stop, won't stop, originally came out of what 2005
1: 2005 jeff chang wrote it and it changed the way in which we talked about the embryonic stage of Mm hip-hop you know usually the story circled around um flash bambada and cool hurt um it talked about the party and you know there were a lot of uh, cliches like uh the gang stopped after hip-hop began and Bambaataa was the one that made it happen and Hurt gave this party and you know there you know these were compelling stories and when Jeff wrote the book um he looked at it through a political social economic lens Mm -hmm. and he um he's like well let me go find out who those gang members were (laughs) you know and in doing that he he brought to the forefront the story about the gang truce in 71 um he, he looked at, the you know, what was happening w- w- with the Ghetto Brothers, you know, and how they were influenced by the Young Lords and how the Black Panthers were influencing the gangs and, you know, basically a a city or a section of a city that had been all but abandoned um, in terms of policies and funding uh, managed to find a way out of no way um, in some horrific times in the backdrop of the story of hip hop and was, you know, accentuated in the, in the first book was a massive fires that, that took place, um, over 30,000 buildings burnt, you know, um, I lived in those communities and the, uh, building of the cross Bronx expressway, uh, the dismantling of the black power movement, mm-hmm. all these things. And, you know, with, through this very systemic, um, arduous oppression, that people who didn't have language, didn't have a word for it, or maybe even a political analysis still managed to uh, culturally accomplish something that we enjoy to this day, 47, 48 years later, which is hip hop. And um, that's how that came about. And he looked at uh, hip hop, not just in the South Bronx, but then looked at it on the other part of the country in Los Angeles and you know, and I'll close with this because people are like, well, why look at L.A. and New York? It's not so much that we were looking that he was looking at just L.A. and New York, but he was looking at the the economic conditions, which are transferable mm-hmm. to just about any city. And um, and, you know, in L.A. with its gang troops in 92 and with its storied history of uh, militarized police, um, the Watch Writers Workshop, um, you know, cornerstone to the black arts movement, all that stuff made that story um, in particular an important one as we looked at the ascension of West Coast hip hop in the form of NWA, IT, and others. So, yeah, that's what that book, you know, it, 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 it kind of detailed a lot of that. And when we were asked to do, um, he was asked to do a young adult version on the 15th anniversary, he said, let's introduce this to a younger generation. Um, and so he asked me to come in and, and we basically uh, shored up things that were left out in the first book mm-hmm. and, you know, gave extra context, cultural context to a lot of it. And I think it's really good. And, you know, some people are like, well, young adult, and I would say, don't get fooled by the title. Um, it's it, Young adult does not mean dumbed down. Exactly, It just means that, we had in mind a younger adult to read this book. That's who we want to make sure gets this information. And um, and so we're telling that story, the embryonic story again, um, but again with them in mind and making the connections in a way that they can relate to while, you know, simultaneously adding a lot more new material uh, that didn't exist in the first book. So in other words, like, when you cop that tall black guy album, you copped that book,
0: which came out yesterday, came out Tuesday. Well, I'm I'm a cop. I'm a cop. One and I need you to sign it for me. So, so I'll definitely um take care of that on my end. I definitely want to support. There's a story that Ninth One told me, and I know I'm gonna butcher it, but this is kind of in a, in a roundabout way that I thought was really interesting. So when I thought about you in this book, I thought about this story. He told me that he was at Harvard, and and one of the people was like, I guess they have like a Harvard Museum in there. Never been, but. They take him to this room and she's like, this lady was like, I got to show you something. So it's like one of those uh, big, I guess you would call it a safe or something like that, where you twist the top, open it up and it looks like steam is coming up or whatever. So he said that when she twists it and opens it, she reaches in and pulls out this thick, thick piece of glass protecting a document. She pulls it out. and She says, this is one of the rough drafts of the Gettysburg Address um, Wow. that, that, Abraham Lincoln Was rocking with He was trying to figure it out Or whatever And She puts it down And right next right. to it She pulls out Another thick piece of glass And it's like One of the first uh, uh, Flyers out there Was at Cedric and Cedar Or whatever And she's like She's like Showing night like That this flyer From the 70s And, and the birthplace Of hip hop culture She shows that to him And they're next to each other And she said to him To Harvard University This Gettysburg address Is just as important as this and and it really it really hit me right because growing up in hip-hop culture i don't know if we understood the impact we were just enjoying it you know what i mean um right at what point did you understand looking at hip-hop from a from a perspective of like you know you're more than just somebody that enjoys the culture you're you've lectured about it you taught about it and you understood the the historical significance in the past and what it's going to do for the future when did that Like light bulb go off in your head
1: I don't know if If there's one moment where the light bulb Went off and I don't think there's One moment for anybody um, Involved Uh, The question's layered And there's many angles To take in answering it but let me Say this I like to use The word intentionality Mm -hmm. And what that means Is that Some of the accomplishments within hip hop was not as organic as people like to romanticize that there was some intention Mm. that centered around i think initially improving the conditions that people lived in and then finding a way for people to more easily navigate um challenging scenarios so if you talk about the gang truce in 71 that's intentional Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know that's not you know in Even though the book really focuses on, um, you know, focuses on, you know, the one that came December 8th, 1971, you know, there were three or four attempts to do that before it finally locked in. That's not something to look over and dismiss and just remove. That's something that we have to look at and say, wow, these people who were left to their own devices, who were considered, you know, expendable, found a way get it together. Um, If we're talking about hip hop as it emerges, and we're looking at, you know, the structures that showed up in terms of how crews formed and how people were able to go from project to project and, and neighborhood to neighborhood and do this thing. Yes, there was a lot of enjoyment, but there was also crucial infrastructure that I don't think people kind of can appreciate, you know, It may have came in the form of, say, a group like Zulu Nation, which featured, you know, which consisted of many former gang members from the spades and stalls and others who, you know, were like, look, you know, come to this neighborhood and we hold it down. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, those are important things to, to, to think about. So there was a nurturing process, um, there's a technological process, whether it was Cool Hurt coming up with the breakbeat and doing his merry-go-round all the way up to Flash, coming up with his quick-mix uh, clock theory, right? Mm-hmm. These are things that were where folks were looking at this activity and saying, how can we do this better? How can we improve upon it? And I want to kind of underscore that, and I can underscore a lot more examples, but... What I don't want people to take in is the belief that this is naturally occurring, you know, like these black people in the ghetto, they just naturally do things. Yes, there there are some cultural aesthetics that we can trace back you know to our heritage and in africa and more directly in parts of the caribbean and the, and in the south where you're from and other things like that that we can look at for you know like the drums and the way we may move and all that that's good but there's also folks that are like let me take this turntable and let me create something with it that it wasn't intended to do. Mm -hmm. You know, let me make it an instrument. That's important to know. That's technological prowess. And when we look at somebody like, say, Steve Jobs and, you know, Steve Wozniak, you know, the founders of Apple, they're praised for sitting in a room and saying, how do we solve a problem? People need to make long-distance calls, and it costs a lot. Let's make a blue box and, you know, and find a way that we can circumvent the obstacle of making a phone call long distance people praise them they go oh they were innovative they were you know this is something that we need to herald and it becomes part of the law you know urban law when we you know folklore when we talk about technology but the technological technological advances of what some of these early pioneers did uh, whether it was a physical one and changing the turntable or whether it was a cultural one in terms of how you you know um deliver rhymes and do all these things you know that's just as important this goes back to the harvest thing that flyer Mm -hmm. symbolizes all that sort of stuff that is often just written off as just some black kids just doing some hippity hop stuff exactly (laughs) but this hippity hop stuff is a multi billion dollar a year industry just in this country yeah you know we're not talking about how rich it is all around the world and and outside of the realm of it being a commodity it is culture it's rich in culture that you know we're just beginning to appreciate in terms of how it's penetrated uh folks so whether people are in singapore or korea or japan or various places through the continent um there's a magic about this this thing called hip-hop and um and when you look at it in its totality, you see that it even overwhelms the, um, you know, that's really the culture that we should be uplifting, not just the stuff that comes out as a music industry, which I think kind of limits um, hip hop.
0: You know, it's it's interesting, right? I, I grew up in an era where, I think I grew up in the right time, where I was a kid when I was probably like 10, When when stuff like, you know, Midnight Marauders uh, uh, came out. Um, So I was old enough to be to have the impression, but I wasn't necessarily old enough in those years to to be an adult, to know what those decisions are going to make. And I I bring this up because, you know, when I'm 11, 10 or 11 years old, you got stuff like The Chronic and you got Doggy Style coming out. And and I remember around that time where, you know, the C. Dolores Tuckers of the world were just really kind of just anti-hip-hop. You know, there was the 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 smashing of the CDs with, with steamrollers and all that stuff. And and the thing about it is, I think we've softened to her, you know, as the, the older I get, because I'm in my 30s now, where it's basically, like I grew up on a lot of that, and I love it, but like, but a lot of it you know when people are talking about uh you know WAP at the grammys they're like oh i've never heard anything like this and i'm like well i grew up on luke i grew up on on snoop i grew up on on you know nwa um i'm wondering how did you take the attack on hip-hop around those times you know in the in the early 90s uh you know specifically with a lot of west coast rap and and does your does your perspective change as you get older? Do you say to yourself, like, "Oh, this shit was a little, a little uh, vulgar? <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: Well, you know, the attack on rap comes early on, so let's give it a perspective.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you have a civil rights generation in the 70s, and part of their goal is to integrate and assimilate,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: become respected and to, you know, and, and to really get a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, so hip hop was an embarrassment for our parents that had that as a foundation for their outlook on the world you know like my mom is like we didn't you know we didn't send you to school to wear your hat packers. Yeah. you know um, what is this noise you know hip hop the, the word itself or the phrase was you know as a grand mixer DST would, would tell you was a pejorative one you know take that hippity hop stuff out of here and mm-hmm. you know pull your pants up and do something constructive it was noise but that is a continuum of rock mm-hmm. or r and V being noise compared to the gospel or funk being noise compared to you know maybe a little bit more wholesome type of motown sound right mm-hmm. so there's always people that were like this is going to make us look bad. And hip hop was one of those things. It made us look bad. Um, but that was really because people didn't understand or they want to wear their contradictions, you know, um, while parents were like, you all are doing all this damn dancing on your back and all that. Um, they were watching soul train and look at some of those old soul train tapes. Yeah. yeah. They were listening <laughs> to Millie Jackson and exactly watching, you know, uh, black exploitation movies. Right. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of things that were going on um, that early on hip hop was under attack. And then later it became an embarrassment for black radio. And I usually lecture about that because black radio was dealing with two things. One, You had people that was just like, this is noise. This ain't no temptations. This ain't, (laughs) you know, the Isley Brothers. What is this, right? Um, But you also had advertisers that were like, you know, we're going to now shift our advertising away from the people with the most listeners and change it to the people who are the most affluent, the station that has the most affluent listeners, which meant that black radio, at least in New York, started to play a lot of disco, watered down disco, Mm -hmm. and do things that would appeal to a, a more affluent slash whiter audience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Nelson George talks about it in his book, Death of Rhythm and Blues. But I just remember, you know, like WBLS, you know, being the world's best looking sound. And in some parts of the city, you saw a white woman with blonde hair on the poster, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, you know, you can look at some of the commercials online and you started to see, uh, the beginnings of racial ambiguity, like, are they black? Are they brown? What are they? You <laughs> right. know, they're urban. You know, that's when they started using the word urban to describe radio. And so I don't want to be long winded, but I just want to say that I'm painting a picture so people can understand as we go up to see Dolores Tucker, that you had this notion that we need to be better than this, mm. right? That argument is being played out right now with Cardi B and, yeah, yeah. and uh, Megan on the Grammys. Oh, you know, the WAP just says, we need to do better than this. And it's like, better in whose eyes? Yeah. You know, like people acting like they hadn't seen Prince with his pants hanging out, his <laughs> exactly. you know, butt cheeks hanging out, or that we haven't seen Madonna do what she did. And, you know, then people go, well, this is making us look bad. Well, You've had 30 years to understand the Grammys. Why are you even watching it in the first place? Exactly. And, well, the kids, most kids don't know about the Grammys. Most kids are on TikTok. Mm -hmm. And, like, I remind people, you're coming off of a – you're looking at the Grammys and ignoring for the past two or three months that TikTok had a uh, Buss Challenge. Yeah, And then came back with a red light challenge, which made whatever Cardi B <laughs> and <laughs> Megan were doing on the <laughs> look tame. Exactly. Right? You know, so what are we talking about, you know, really? And so some of it is a lot of this is rooted in what we call respectability politics. Uh, yeah. And so so let me get to your C. Dolores thing. C. Dolores, rightfully so was upset when she heard a certain type of blackness being marketed um, by corporations to the world. And this was in the form of NWA and others. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, we actually did a boycott of NWA before C. Dolores Tucker. Really, We had a two-year boycott out here, and it really came because we did their first interviews. You know, we did their first interviews when they came out, and um, a guy named Kevi Kev, who was at KVSU, he was like, man, how can you play Malcolm and then turn around and play NWA? And so we were challenged on that, and so we did two weeks' worth of uh, debate, on-air debate, and it involved um, our three main college shows, the ones from Stanford, the other ones from Cal Berkeley, and a community station, Black-run community station called KPOO. Mm-hmm. Um, it featured myself and the DJs from those respective stations that did the hip-hop shows and members of a then-fledging group that we now know as Digital Underground, mm-hmm. right? So we had these uh, big debates, and we agreed that if the audience felt like we shouldn't play this, then we wouldn't. And so they came up, you know, about sixty forty, and said, we won't play them. Um, we followed that up with an interview, which is online, you know, it was published with Ice Cube and EZ mm. and Easy was like how the hell you're not gonna play our records and it's like well you know you know you call them women the B word you use an N word you know and we're trying to you know you know, try to get the community something something different and he's like well damn it I'll send you a bunch of instrumentals and he hung up <laughs> <laughs> and Cube stayed on mm-hmm. and um, Cube talked about when he was with NWA you know, that, well, Houston, what NWA said, he wanted to, um, on their first album, give some political context to why they were doing the songs. He said, I wanted to tell them, you know, I wanted us to have interludes and stuff like that and let folks know why we were doing the song and that we were reporters and not glorifying it. And he said he was overruled by Ren and everybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, A few months later, I ran into Cube in LA and, you know, he told me, Um, That you know he had left the group, and that you know I'd be happy to hear what they're doing. But he was going to be with Public Enemy, who actually I was pretty tight with, and still am tight with, you know, at that time. So that that I know, I ran into Easy, you know, months later, and to the day he died, he thought it was a big joke, you know, so there was never any beef. (laughs) <laughs> but it was just one of those things like, oh, here's the guy with the inch- – you, to- you want some more instrumental? <laughs> You're the instrumental you know? guy? Wow. Yeah, that, that, yeah, so that's how he always would was, was say things. So I think they understood, you know, the controversy as far as they were concerned was good for them. Uh, but we kept it up, you know, for a good two years. And the only time that boycott got broken was um, by some of the white folks. Um, actually, one of the people helped bring me into the radio. Who, um, uh, what you call it, Um, who felt it was a free speech issue? Mm -hmm. It's like, man, this is free speech. And eventually they got a show right after ours. Mm -hmm. And the first thing they would play was NWA. Wow. So that's how that kind of worked when you looked at that. But when we look at um, C. DeLores Tucker, she was looking at it as why these corporations peddling filth. Mm. And. I think at the time people were pretty angry because hip-hop was not getting um, its its respect. Mm -hmm. And remember, the N.W.A. gangster rap comes on the heels, or at least its popularity, comes on the heels of the Afrocentric period. Yeah. Yeah. And none of that stuff was getting any love. Public Enemy, KRS, all the grand things that people did, it was not getting any love at all. So people were just like, Man, you people are always hating on us. And so folks went to other outlets. You know, it was it was some of the pop stations, at least where we're at, that was playing hip hop on a regular basis before the black stations. It was M T V before B E T, right? So you had those type of um situations where people are just like, Man, these these You know, these conservative ass, you know, (laughs) uh, Uncle Tom types just won't, you know, give us any love. So, you know, we're going to go where we get love. And people embraced it. And then eventually they applied the music industry formula, which is sex, drugs and rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And that got applied to hip hop. So it's like, yeah, Fight the Power is good. It's rebellious. We like it. But, you know, uh, we like this other thing where you talk about shooting. Yeah. (laughs) So let's highlight that. And so. You know, see Dolores Tucker, when she jumps into the scene, she's seeing it from that angle. And I think history bore her out a little bit Mm -hmm. Um, as we got older. You know, I think people can see, like, okay, see Dolores Tucker deserved more respect than she got at the time because um, she didn't understand this this thing. But she did know that there was an industry that was – Exploiting
0: um, us, you know. And exploiting us. And that was something that I always thought was interesting, right? Because like I always sided with the artists when I was growing up because I was a kid. You know what I mean? Um, but the older you get and you look back at it, you know, what I think is different for me now is that when I talk to to young people growing up with hip hop stuff, or especially from the radio perspective, you know, when I had like Rap City, uh, on TV raps and all those type of things, I never felt overwhelmed by violent rap music because I was exposed to so many things, right? Like, I was exposed yeah. to the Native Tongues, the NWAs, a Beastie Boys, a Public Enemy. So there wasn't something that felt like, oh, this one type of hip-hop is a representation of all that's out there. And I think that, right. that what ended up happening... Um, over time is that you know the the Major stations whether It was like you know Clear Channel taking Stuff o- over and, and DJs not having the power to break records Anymore then you only just start to hear One type of thing and, and, and I think what ended up happening you know When we talk about you know Chuck And Fight the Power to me Growing up that's like to this day the biggest record That I've ever heard as an introduction To hip hop for me like I thought it was the most Amazing shit ever to the point where the column that I write here in South Carolina, my column is called Fight the Power because I think it's the greatest hip-hop song right. ever created. And there was never right. there was never this separation of thinking to me that if you made something politically active, something that talked about what was going on in the community, I didn't think you had to compromise it being popular, right? And so I, I had this conversation with someone the other day. We were talking about Motown. And, and, and my friend was saying that, well, you know, Barry should have gotten credit for, you know, a lot of these Motown artists when they started to make um, socially conscious music. And I was like, well, I don't know if that's the case, because what what I think ended up happening when I look at early Motown, you know, it looked like respectability politics. Right. Like you would see Smokey Robinson and even early Marvin Gaye and Supremes are dressed really nice. They're making like these love songs that are just real, you know. They're catchy, but they're poppy love songs that really don't make you think about what's going on in the community, which is hilarious right. to me because around this time you got like civil rights shit going on. You know, my family's from the south, so imagine right. listening to sweet love songs with black folks wearing suits and people in that community getting beaten in the fucking head by cops. You know, so it was really this this, right. this interesting dynamic. And what I think ended up happening was that I felt like I can't imagine Barry Gordy being used to Marvin doing pop records. All of a sudden, coming and say, "Hey, I want to do this. What's going on?" Album, and Barry's like, right. "There's no pop records on here. How can I sell this?" Or I know this yeah. for a fact because I remember uh, Barry didn't want to do songs of the key of life. It cost like three million dollars, and Stevie right. is like, "Look at my contract. I can produce what the fuck I want." And his hand was kind of like, you know, he, he was kind of forced into. Uh, making, uh, putting out music to have political statements, not necessarily something that right. he did willingly, you know? Um, right. So did, was that something that you saw as well, like with, with black music, kind of like having that struggle? And, and I wonder, do you No, see... I, didn't,
1: I didn't see it that, it wasn't that way. Mm-hmm. It, you know, look, you know, in hindsight, there are things that um, we would do differently, and we didn't know at the time. Mm-hmm you know remember the early versions of hip hop mimicked the temptations and everybody else when they were doing their performances mm-hmm. let's get the nice suits let's mm-hmm. you know you know present ourselves on stage you know you look at the dress you know the costumes that the uh, grandmaster Flashes and soul sonic force and others did you know it was very much patterned after what they saw as a path to success Mm -hmm. in the music industry but remember people who were doing this thing did not ever thought never thought they would see a day when they would be on record and then once it got on record you know folks were learning it you know it's trial by fire um the you know black music was black radio large you know and i want to i don't want to put a whole blanket on because it's different in different parts of the country, but there was a hesitation to go down the road that was going to limit the type of advertisement that you could get. Yeah, And so you needed to walk up there and say, Hey, we have earth, wind and fire. Yeah. You know, not that we have the dirty dozen out of South Carolina. It's like, who? what, what is this? You know, <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so you were playing a lot of that game. and pop radio. Um, and at least in Cali, was able to capitalize off that and go, you know, this this hip-hop stuff, it's pop. And we play it. And they were like, oh, do you have the audience to back it up? Is it diverse? Diverse meaning, is it not black? Mm-hmm. And they were able to go, yes. Look at all these white listeners we have. Not knowing, you know, and many of these people didn't realize that Cali in the West Coast has large Asian population, which got bucketed as white. And mm. that Asian population out West, many of them tend to be urban. You know, they lean urban. So, you know, they, they live in a hood. They listen to the same music. Yeah. Um, and if they filled out a ratings card, you know, and they had an Asian, you know, ethnicity, you know, checked off, it was going to be bucketed into a white thing. So when you have a million Filipinos and a million Vietnamese and, you know, and half your city is Chinese, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to have these numbers that say, oh, wow, this thing is, is it's 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 popular in a demographic that we put monetary value on which would be white so i say all this to kind of give that understanding so that folks know that what we were up against was one side of town saying you can make some money by selling a product that appeals to an audience that is not black but an audience that is outside the black community who are going to be fascinated by notions of blackness which includes being street which includes being gangster which you know which includes being from the hood and all those other clichés yeah um that was going to be their thing and you had a black side of town that didn't understand what we were doing because they were trying to play catch-up and instead of, you know, and they never nurtured, you know, the folks that were doing this. You didn't have the sit-downs and really say, here's how you hone this and take it to the next level. Um, here's how you, you know, finesse this. This is how you um, really take this talent in and move it. And so, you know, again, you have generations of people that were doing trial by fire. And then I'll close by saying, you know, what interrupts any potential for this to this gap to be closed is that all this is happening in the middle of the crack epidemic, mm. which is decimating our communities. And so if you even wanted to get out of the community, you wanted to get out of certain neighborhoods, you're looking at the, the drug dealer. The, you know, so that's a third factor. He's like, man, I can I can financial record. Yeah, I can help your dreams. And so that person is also looking for a quick return on the dollar. And, you know, it's like, well, you know, you say, bang, bang, shoot him up. That's going to make me some money. Let's go that route. Why are you doing this, you know, um, this other thing? But I know I said it was going to close. We also shouldn't forget it's in the middle of that crack epidemic that people have these meetings. Mm Mm-hmm in places like the Latin Quarter, you know, Paradise Grey of X-Clan talks about it because he was the one that convened them, where, you know, them in the Black Watch movement with Sonny Carson and all of them. So you had this Afrocentric period that we all romanticized about, like, wow, there was X-Clan, there was KRS, and, you know, native tongues. All this comes out of people sitting in a room and saying, let us give some meaning to this expression mm-hmm. so it's not either or it's both and mm-hmm. you know um it was geographic you know some people were like they never heard of us from oakland they never heard of us from la so we're gonna we're gonna kick in the doors and you're gonna know what it's like you know this is our hood this is what we dealing with and and to a certain degree that was important it was important to know about a Compton. it was important to know what south central was like it's important to know about a detroit or wherever anybody was coming from and, you know, them representing what they felt people would respond to. And oftentimes when you're young, they respond to your, your, you know, your notion of toughness more than it is your notion of intellect.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting, too, is that, you know, anybody from outside an area, like the same way that... I'm from the South and, and I'm in South Carolina, but when people think of the South, they probably think about a Texas or an Atlanta before anything else. Being right. from Oakland, I know that um, people hear that you're on the West Coast, they always lump it up with just being LA as being kind of the, the, the focus on it. Is was there something about the Oakland movement around the same time where la was coming out where you you noticed that there was a a difference in sound or approach
1: to answer your question about the west coast (laughs) the way that we got to look at hip-hop is this way there's a new york story there's this art form that we call hip-hop, and we know the lore of it, comes from the South Bronx, and Cool Herc and the parties, and all that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the brilliance of Jeff's book, the first time he did it, and in the second book that we both did, is that when you contextualize it, you know, there were systemic, economic, political, um, social conditions that people were dealing with, challenges, right? Mm-hmm. And what you, instead of looking at the emceeing and the DJing and the dancing as art. Look at it as expression,
2: mm-hmm.
1: cultural expression, cultural expression that builds around percussion, the drum, cultural expression that mo- builds around movement, the dance, cultural expression that moves, you know, that builds around the oral tradition. All of those rooted in African aesthetics, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So now, when you look at it from that lens. Then you can go, okay, I see the cultural, you know, engagement. Some people don't like to use the word response, like it's reactionary, but let's say engagement that people have to an environment that's challenging. Now the question becomes, Not when did hip hop start, but where does that expression exist? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So in the 70s, if we had hip hop in New York you have you go down the road 200 miles you have go-go in dc yeah for the same exact reasons you know the expression percussion breakdowns <laughs> movements <laughs> oral traditions mm-hmm. you know we rhymed and they're doing call-in response mm-hmm. but it, but the same audience i mean the same type of crowd our counterpart is doing go-go you go to chicago it's house, you go to Detroit, it's techno, right? You go to different cities and you see that people have these, 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 um, um, musical movements and moments. So you come out West and still funk and people, people are, you know, people are in bands. So the same time that we have three and four member crews, in new york that's based around the dj here in the west coast both in la and in the bay definitely you have four and five member funk bands everybody has a band yeah. <laughs> everybody's yeah. sitting up there trying to figure out if they're going to be the next function and what have you and alongside those bands are people that are doing these dances so here in the west coast and in, in the bay it was boogaloo and it was strutting it was um it was roboting down In in L.A., it was locking and roboting, you know. So there are these dances, right? People ain't spinning on their backs. But that same person from the hood, whether it was East Oakland, West Oakland, South Central, Compton, or wherever, they all had dances. And these dances now are part of the larger hip-hop repertoire, right? So when you see the robot, oh, that's hip-hop, you know? You see the strutting, oh, that's hip-hop. But these are things that were happening independent of what was going on in new york Mm -hmm. now sometimes people in new york picked it up because they saw those dances show up on soul train sometimes people went back east and saw their you know cousins and 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 folks or some people you know um, had friends on army bases and they picked up those moves and they bought it here but the point that i'm getting at is that there was a a a scene a music scene in all these places. so there was a music scene here on the West coast. That's important to know that that music scene had nothing to do with what was going on in New York. So when hip hop becomes popular from the New York thing, you know, the New York style of hip hop or expression becomes popular. You have people from the hood that go, Oh, okay. That rapping thing. That sounds like that Dolomite stuff that I I saw on TV. Yeah. Yeah. Or that sounds like that pimp talk. That my uncle does. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I'm gonna take bits and pieces and I'm gonna incorporate it in already existing structure. You know, I ain't gonna spin on my back, but I like the way that they did this. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick that up. Oh, okay, you know, we don't need a band. They got a DJ, so we maybe I'll do the DJ thing. You yeah. see, yeah. uh, you know, I, I don't know about all this James Brown or, you know, or, or some of this maybe Latin tinged um bongo stuff, you know. Um, that mambo stuff, that mambo rhythm that's popular in New York, but I'm going to play this Roger and Zap and we're going to get off on that. So, you know, so you had a, you, you already had uh, uh, a structure that took in parts that made sense <laughs> for people out here um, when hip hop started to become popular and that's important to note. So, the hip hop that came out West was not supposed to and shouldn't sound like the hip hop back East. And, you know, we're looking at Oakland, we're looking at LA, you know, you're you're looking at, you know, places that are like the second and fourth largest marketplaces in the country. So it doesn't mean that Columbia, South Carolina didn't have a scene, didn't mean that Atlanta didn't have a scene because they did. Didn't mean that Houston didn't have a scene because it did. And the question was, you know, do we look and see what was in existence at that time and where it intersects with the popularity and the eventual, you know, um, push of, of New York style hip hop. That's how I see it. And so, you know, when I moved out here to the Bay, there were two things I noticed real quick is that people were not enamored or impressed that you were from New York, as I saw when you were back <laughs> east. Yeah, You know, like, if, if you know, when you went up and down the East Coast, you know, at that time, he's like, man, I'm from New York. It's like, oh, wow. That, <laughs> that, that, that's New York. And the only place that they weren't impressed was when you went to D.C. Mm-hmm. You know, D.C. had a type of arrogance. It's like, yeah, well, you know, that's cool. We're chocolate city. We're like 80% black. So, you know, New York is cool, but this is a chocolate city. Right. But then the rest of the places, you know, from North Carolina on down, you know, be like, Man, that's that's New York City. But when you go to three thousand miles away, people were like, Oh, New York. Oh, okay. Okay, good good for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I I think I had a cousin that lived there, you know, nobody there was no like, what's the new style? You know, what are you doing because it's so far away and you don't have YouTube, you don't have all this infrastructure. All you have is, um, you know, you, you got to do for self. Yeah. You know, so you, and so you had an independent scene that emerges out here. And then L.A. is the entertainment capital. So like D.C., you know, L.A. is like, well, you know, this L.A., you know, the entertainment capital. And then L.A.'s black population has this whole infrastructure with the gang thing and all that. And so, you know, it's not impressed with New York either. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, so some of these things get integrated in a very different way than it may have been in other cities. Um, what I noticed is that people outside the black community, um, especially the younger ones, kind of embraced hip hop wholesale as it was presented in pop culture. So if they saw beat street or they saw some of these movies or they saw, you know, a concert, they were like, let me soak this whole thing up, you know, wholesale. Whereas people that were from the hood was like, well, you know, some of this is cool, but some of it ain't. So I'm just going to take this part. Yeah. So, you know, so Too Short is like, I don't need to be a lyricist. I need to be somebody who can talk about what's going on in East Oakland. And I and, and I got to do it so that it, it bumps in the car because we don't ride no subways. He probably wasn't even thinking about a subway. He was uh, just thinking about what sounds good when we're riding around in our car. And so and we're going to get that funk beat. And we're going to say it real slow so you can hear it. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to talk about Big Joe, who's from Brookfield, and Big Sam, who's from, uh, you know, um, Sobrani. Or I'm going to talk about, you know, Lil Rob from Seminary, right? And so when people hear that, it's like, oh, man, you're acknowledging us. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know, and again, that's an African thing. You yeah. know, um, one of the things we talk about in the book is the shout-out. How did hurt keep the peace at the party? Acknowledge everybody. You know, um, oh, man, it's priest. preach. preaching in the preacher lots, man. They're yeah, in the building. Yeah. So as soon as we acknowledge you, guess what? Priest and his crew of 15, they feel like, oh, man, they acknowledge us, man. So we good. I feel seen.
0: I feel seen,
1: yeah. I feel seen that's, right? That's
0: very you important. Know? Wow. Yeah.
1: There's Dave and the diplomats. Oh, well you know, we we're rivals, but man, you know, they making me look good. And then, you know, they'll even joke about it. Like they might even be like preach, you know, um, uh, you gotta go move your Lexus. Mm. You don't have
2: Lexus. I don't have no Lexus, <laughs> have no Lexus.
1: <laughs> But it's like Preach got a Lexus? Yeah. You know, so we're making you feel good.
0: But the psychology of that is is pretty right. pretty amazing that, that he yeah. had the wherewithal to wear with all, be like, yo, you know, I can create peace in this very very simple form <laughs> by just but, acknowledging.
1: Yeah, and I don't think I don't think Herc was thinking of it in in you know social political terms like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's a natural thing you do. If if I was to if you go to L.A. and you win in red in
2: mm-hmm.
1: a blue neighborhood mm-hmm. and you get stopped, you got two choices. You can be like, I'm preach, I'm gonna do what the hell I want and y'all just gonna have to, you know, deal with that. And you can look and say, Well, I'm not that type of guy and they know I'm not that type of guy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Or you can sit up there and be like, Man, I like your shoes.
0: More, <laughs> man, yeah. where'd
1: you get the, man, you know, yeah, oh, yeah. man, where'd you get that cut from? Oh man, you know, and all of a sudden people like, yo, Man, you alright, man. <laughs> yeah. You alright with me, man. We usually don't let people wear red, but man, you know what? You I was seen. Exactly. And I appreciate you. So let me um take this and fast forward it. Where did this happen that maybe changed the way that people where changed the dynamic?
0: Um, are you talking about like when D Nice is doing uh the Thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. People couldn't figure it out. Yeah. Oh, Michelle Obama here oh, you know, did he not spend, like, 10 hours just acknowledging people? Yep. Now you go on a place like Twitch and what everybody got to do when they
2: do, <laughs> Right.
1: <laughs> Yo, what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You can't, you can't even spend without making sure that people be seen. And so when if you start to move it and look at it from this, you know, give it a psychological lens, you know, you're talking about people who were, you know, written off. Exactly. People who were ignored and somebody uplifted them. And I think in many ways hip hop has always given that nod to people. You know, when you're on the mic, you acknowledging your DJ, when you you acknowledging your crew, you know, you acknowledging your neighborhood. You know, we called it representing. And, you know, and that became a, a very important thing. And when you start to look at, I think, you know, some of these early structures around hip hop, at least on the rapping side, you constantly see people name-checking their neighborhoods and their community. Like, man, you know, I'm from Tanzania, but I'm from the east side of Tanzania. I'm yeah, from yeah. Somalia, so I'm from Mogadishu. You know what I mean? People, that's, that's a theme that runs through hip-hop. I'm right? from Palestine, but I'm from the Gaza Strip. <laughs> you know, and that's how we start to learn about each other in a world that doesn't even want to give us the mic at all. Well, so that's why it becomes important.
0: I, I'm not gonna hold up too much more of your time because I got about about five six minutes left. Because I was thinking of just doing an hour, but I thought what I thought was really really interesting to me was that the the idea of timeless music, right? Where where it's weird that there's some hip hop that'll come out that if you listen to it a year or two later it sounds dated, but yeah. you know me working in a record store, you know I can put on uh, a Diggable Planets album and that shit sounds like it came out right now. And 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 my brain just started going deeper and deeper and deeper and I was wondering about my my um obsession with like jazz music. And and I, uh-huh. and, it, and it dawned on me. It's like, you know, when I look at a lot of these jazz musicians, I have like a bunch of Miles posters in my house, these Coltrane posters, is that they always look timeless to me. You know what I mean? Like like Miles having an Italian suit, cigarette in his mouth that always looks cool. It doesn't seem like it's ever feels outdated. And when I think about who's that figure in hip hop, I feel like if I look at any picture of Pop He looks timeless There's never an expiration date On his influence And it feels like he can always be current like, like the same way that Kendrick would do To pimp a butterfly Take an interview from Pop in the 90s And that shit is right on time You know what I mean um,
1: Because, uh, because Pop is talking about Oppression
0: mm-hmm.
1: And oppression in America Is a constant companion with the black experience So it translates over
0: Constant companion, wow
1: And so um, You know One of the things that we talk about is that One of the roots of hip hop is Is, you know, the reggae part And the toasting and all that But the other part of the root of it is jazz Mm-hmm. and and having a deeper understanding of jazz, we think of jazz like Kenny G and candlelight music, <laughs> and we don't realize that jazz was a very aggressive, and in fact, in many ways, it was protest music, mm-hmm. and if you look at it from the bebop perspective, that, you know, when they started doing, you know, you know, the, at Milton's Playhouse, and, you know, and you have Gillespie and Thelonious, and all them guys, you know, they were very, we are going to create something, and we're going to create something that you can't catch. Exactly. And, you know, and this is going to, you know, be our expression. You know, we do all that swing stuff with Duke, Ellington, and them, you know, to get paid. But at night, we jamming and doing our own thing. So there was an intentionality. And, and along with that came style.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I'm going to wear these berets and have to go tea And, you know, and we're going to have our slang and blah, blah, blah. Right? So that thing stood the test of time because it was really representative of the people that were not being seen, who at the time were like, we're going to make sure you recognize our manhood. So the reason why that thing seems timeless is because you have people stepping up and saying, you're going to understand who I am. Yeah. And it's not that much different than hip hop. I think sometimes some of the music is not timeless when it is rooted in formula
2: yeah yeah
1: so you know some of that stuff is like this don't make no sense but then you did this not with me in mind you did this with them in mind well you know so 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 you're so some of the stuff is not it 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 doesn't stand the test of time but Pac may stand the test of time piggy may stand the test of time rakim may stand the test of time so you know um, Wu Tang, yeah, and then some of the other stuff is like, you know, it's not it's not rooted in it. You you hear it, but you don't feel it.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's dated immediately. Well, I'm wondering, you know, when I when I think about what you do, um, you're a translator. You're someone that can take hip hop culture to people that don't understand hip hop culture, or even people that are in hip hop culture and explain it to them in a way. To make them understand the historical significance of it and why it's important to them, or the people that don't think it's important, why that shit should be important to you, and so you're you're essentially the a defense attorney for the culture, right? So like if you know, listening to um, you speaking on behalf of a lot of these things, and and, and including this book, which by the way is uh, can't stop, won't stop, came out this week. Um, I definitely, I'm definitely wondering, you know, the Easy E story was funny. Do you have any? Any personal uh, interactions that would be interesting That, that might include like an easy A Pac, a Prince, a Chuck um, Anything that kind of sticks to mind that You know, was a surreal experience For you
1: it's, Oh boy, I mean, there's a lot of stories um,
0: You got a Pac one?
1: I mean, my Pac stories are, are They're interesting, they're not the, the funniest Ones, I mean um, You know Let's see, Pac, when he, you know, about a week after he got out, mm-hmm. um, called the station, you know, that came at the time. And he called the station looking for E-40. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, 40 actually texted him. Okay. That's what it was. So 40 text Pac and, um, you know, Pac didn't get it until later. And I was on that Sunday morning doing my show and i you know i had a show called street knowledge and i was doing a show on sexual harassment right yeah uh, with this uh girl think in the middle of show Pac calls mm. you know we didn't know he's gonna call it's like who it's like it's Pac. oh snap Pac, man what are you what man what are you doing oh, man i'm looking you know somebody page me man they paid you last night during club 106 oh so, man what are y'all doing and we, you know, we're doing a show on um, sexual harassment. Oh, okay. You want to come on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let me, let me, be on. So Pac became a guest on the show. Wow. And um, and he dropped some gems, you know, considering what he was in jail for, and you know, he maintained his innocence. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also talked about the the type of steps that he would take. He talked about his love for women. He um, he he was uh very direct with the people that challenged him mm-hmm. and um you know you know i think mtv wanted to use it for one of their segments at one point but it was just you know like he was very blunt i'm not blunt in a bad way but you know like very forthright he didn't shy away yeah. from that conversation he's like i'm here for it well you he... know let's talk you know did Pac have I any kids no not that okay. i know okay. but but that was you know that was one of those moments you know a memorable moment um, one of many you know um, the funniest story and I'll close out mm-hmm. is um, there's a gated community out here called Blackhawk mm-hmm. um, this is where B40 lives now a very ritzy type of place John Madden a lot of football players lived here blah blah blah
2: yeah
1: and one day Easy was in town and you know and I, I would be the guy that would take him This when we did the morning show we would take him out on uh would do something like out on the streets. Like, where are you going to go today, Dave? And it's like, you know what? It is Halloween. It was either the day before Halloween or actually Halloween. We said, we're with EZ. We're going <laughs> to take EZ trick-or-treating to Blackhawk. <laughs> and it's like, you ready to do this, Easy? He's like, yeah. So Easy had about 10 people with him, like his bodyguards. Um, he had the twins with him you know, the Samoan twins. I have my crew, so there's about 10, we're about 10 deep, so they're all Samoan and Tongan and, you know, black. Mm-hmm. So we drive out. This this crew that looks like they could be a football team to Blackhawk. And we announce we're going to Blackhawk to go trick or treat Oh, God. And we get to this gated community. And um, as we get there, this, this dude named Scott pulls up beard white top top I heard y'all on the radio come through opens up the gate we drive in to Blackhawk and we pull up to his house so we're about you know two vans deep and you know we, we're talking about we're there and we didn't realize Scott is like a high schooler even though he has a beard mm-hmm. and his mom comes out and he's like mom no this is easy e and it's like and you hear her on the air, you don't bring people like Easy e the Blackhawk. <laughs> and Easy e goes, yo, Scott, hurry up, man, we about to do this drive-by. Okay. Mom freaked out, she calls the police. <laughs> Meanwhile, Easy's talking to the folks, you know, that's back at the station, Rennell and uh, Bill Lee. And what we didn't know is that Easy was sharp on real estate. Mm. So he starts having a full-on real estate conversation. And he's like you know i know nothing about it. it's like you know the acreage here and blah 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 i'm looking at the plots of land and he's like well it looks like these plots of land are about a million dollars but it, you know it doesn't correspond with the acreage and he goes this is the type of place that you would get a bad investment for your money i bet you they have a lot of foreclosures here which they were at the time mm-hmm. and he's like and he concludes like i would never buy a place here wow <laughs> <laughs> and so he's dissing them, you know, but he's having a serious conversation. And as he does, all these golf carts pull up and it's the Blackhawk police. Oh, God. And they're like, hey, man, you know, y'all are trespassing. Y'all are gonna have to leave. So they follow us out and we leave. And Easy's like, you know, cracking jokes to Scott. Scott, man, don't forget that drive-by, man. I'm going to meet you later. <laughs> this is all on the air. What? <laughs> this is all on the air. And so you know, we get out, and uh, you know, we thought it was funny, and came back to the station, and trick or treating with Easy and Blackhawk. And so you know, Blackhawk, the people there, actually wanted to sue the radio station. Wow. So that's that's a funny one. <sighs> and Easy was cool to actually go all the way out there. And it was like a forty-five minute drive out there, forty-five minute drive back.
0: <laughs> what do, do you do? You feel like you know there's like a side of these amazing people that you know that the public just doesn't understand where where they might paint easy to be something totally different than what you know them as
1: i think these are just regular folks yeah you know um you know i mean they have their contradictions you remember i'm a radio guy so and i'm and i'm you know for the most part i'm a square
0: you know i'm not i'm not whatever man I'm, <laughs>
1: Well, uh, you, no, you're the mean, coolest not,
0: person on this phone right now.
1: <laughs> but I'm, but what I'm saying is, is that I'm not going to be the guy that, you know, I'm not a weed smoker. I'm not into a lot of the stuff. So you're, so I'm never, you know, they're not going to show me if there was a, if there was a crazy side to them that wasn't going to come out mm-hmm. around me, yeah, because of what I do and who I am, you know, um, so. Yeah, the humorous side that I that I experienced was gonna be par for court, you know. And you know, and you know, and you know, I'm not trying to use anybody, I'm not trying to get anything from anybody. So there was gonna be a respect thing. Like, man, this dude might have said he's game goof. I can't believe he drove us out here, but there was never gonna be <laughs> there was never gonna be uh something crazy. So you know, memories.
0: All right man. well I thank you for your time tell everybody where they can find this book once again
1: You can pick it up on all the bookstores obviously you can get it on Amazon um you can go to com, and you know get all the information there and I thank you for your time
0: If I um if I send you a copy of both of them could you get Jeff to sign it as well as you
1: Yeah we'll do it
0: All right we'll do it man.
1: Word. With, you know, you charge a thousand dollars a signature, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got some pandemic, Bitcoin. Baby. It's
0: pandemic, man. <laughs> you know, you made, I ain't even mad. Make that thing work. But um, thank Uh-oh. you so much for doing this. Uh, I will be in your area soon enough. Again, I'm getting my vaccines Um, and I'll feel a little bit better to start flying. The, the plane tickets are cheap as hell right now, man. I could fly out oh, yeah. to Oakland for like 60 bucks so it's kind of too cheap not to try it, but I will definitely see you soon. And um, I hope you're safe out there. And this is the conclusion of the Negro League podcast. I go by the name of Preach Jacobs. Uh, thank you to my guest, Davy D. Get his book, like he said. We're also sponsored by Better Soul Clothing. Go to MomBethesoul.com and also get the seven-inch pre-order to the black with me, Sky Zoo produced by Tall Black Guy, cuts by DJ Clips. And we'll talk to y'all next time. And we out. Peace.
2: We out. I'll be